Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. This year has gone by incredibly quickly, but it's always nice to pause and take stock. What's something you're proud of in 2024 so far? What's something you still want to accomplish this year? I know I'm guilty of falling into a routine and not always thinking about the bigger picture, but as the great Ferris Bueller once said, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you can miss it. So it's crucial to take a moment to celebrate your wins and make adjustments for the rest of the year. Therapy can help you contextualize your progress and set achievable goals for the next six months. As you surely know by now, it's not only for people who have experienced major trauma. Therapy is helpful in all kinds of ways, including learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. If you've been considering trying therapy, check out BetterHelp. It's fully online and was specifically designed to be flexible and customizable to your schedule. To get started, just fill out a brief questionnaire that matches you up with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com FilmDaily today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash film daily. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Thursday, March 19th, 2020. On today's episode, we're going to discuss what we've been up to at the water cooler. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Serretta, and joining me on this podcast is Slash Film Managing Editor, Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Weekend Editor, Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. Senior Writer, Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? And writer, Shwai Trenbui. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hello, folks. Um, so we've all been kind of bunkered down in our, our respective homes for the last, what, six days, I guess. We've been in isolation for six days. So let's talk about what we've been doing, which should be interesting, because I don't, I, I'm assuming we haven't been doing much except for watching stuff, which we'll get to what we've been watching. Uh, but I've, I've been going a little stir crazy, which is crazy because, you know, I, we all work from home, so I think we're used to being at home for a majority of the day. But not having time to leave the house is getting me getting me like just a little stir crazy. Like I, I, I you know, I go out and I walk the dogs, but it's uh, I don't know. I miss being able to go to restaurants or go to stores or 
Disneyland or, or you know, to go to movie theaters. Uh, am I the only one here getting stir crazy? I, we're only six days in. It's probably like, what, another month or two? <laughs> no, you're, you're definitely not alone. Uh, I, my, The whole thing is like when I get off work, uh, if I'm not doing like something required to myself, I'm out of the house. Whether it's to go on a walk or to go to a restaurant or go to a bookstore, I am out. And I'm usually out for at least two to three hours just like shake off my day. So not being able to do that uh, is it's driving me a, a little nuts. Uh, I'm trying to plunge myself into some other projects uh, to keep myself occupied. But yeah, I, I know exactly how you feel, Peter. Yeah. Uh, what what have you been doing? Uh, I'm just doubling down and painting miniatures, Peter. Uh, I have the, I've watched a few things this week because I've been uh, playing video games and painting. Uh, I'm rotating between painting more uh uh, Cthulhu Death May Die miniatures, you know, horror-themed board game. Uh, I've painting uh, painting and assembling uh, Marvel Crisis Protocol, which is a, uh, uh, a heavier project because you actually have to glue and assemble everything in addition to painting them. And, um, and I've also just started painting the Song of Ice and Fire miniature game, which is fun because uh, it's they had the Song of Ice and Fire license from George R. R. Martin, but they do not have the Game of Thrones HBO license. All the characters... Uh, resemble their uh, book counterparts and not their TV show counterparts. So I'm allowed to, you know, uh, paint a bald Tywin Lannister uh, with, with with sideburns as he's described in the book. Or I'm giving Dario Naharis a blue-dyed beard because that's how he's described in the books. So it's that's been my other project. I'm rotating between those three uh, miniature paintings. And I've been just doubling down on exercise. I finally made a whiteboard uh, with grids on it and map- mapped out uh, two weeks in advance what I'm doing every day for exercise. Uh, whether I'm walking and running one day, and uh, what I'm doing in the evening, if I'm like, like for example, uh, today is a uh, bike for 40 minutes in the morning, uh, do some basic hand exercises uh, during this podcast when I'm not speaking, and in the evening I will be doing an hour of Ring Fit on the Nintendo Switch, and tomorrow it's a whole different setup with you know a, a different weight set. So by doubling down on all this, it Keep me physical, keep me focused, and since I'm not eating well during quarantine, <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm maintaining uh, by focusing on this. And this is one part I'm going to say: go to Amazon and order some resistance bands, guys. Uh, set them up near your workplace from home if you're if you're quarantined. And during a moment where you're getting ready to go to Facebook or go to check Twitter, instead stand up for two minutes and do some resistance exercises. Uh, then sit back down and go back to work. Uh, this is what I used to do before I bought a proper weight set. And this is a really, really good excuse and entryway to like, uh, start making exercise a part of your daily life. Like I said, I don't regret doing this and I'm not going to be the kind of guy who says you, everybody has to do it. Uh, but this is a good excuse to give it a try. And, uh, what, I really strongly feel like after a couple weeks in isolation, this could be something that, that makes you feel good and genuinely becomes part of your life even after the quarantine. So I would really recommend people give this a shot, especially if you're working from home like us. So resistance bands, is that like pulling between both of your arms or how, how does that work? Uh, you can buy a set. Each one of them is a different weight. Like uh, I, I'm currently using a 50-pound one for most of my exercises. But pretty much it simulates uh, lifting weights. But instead of that, it's a thick rubber band at, at, that stretches to, to give resistance. So you can like, you know, for example – put it on the ground, stand on it, grab both handles, and lift up to exercise your biceps and forearms. Or you can hook it into a door and pull uh, underarm down to your waist and work your triceps. Or you can hook it into the door 
and put your back to it and pull forward to exercise your chest. In each set you buy comes with a booklet that gives you a bunch of different setups. And you have these door anchors, so you can set it up on your door for different exercises or stand on it. And like I said, there are dozens of exercises you can do with these things, and they're the perfect gateway. I still travel with my resistance band when I go to like Comic Con. If like I, if there's no gym in the hotel, or or if I'm going on a, a trip uh, to a set and there's no gym in the hotel, I have my resistance bands. I'll do full fledged workouts in my hotel room. It, they're they're really great and. Like I said, if you're one of the people who says, oh, I just need the time to you know, make it into my daily routine, I, there's no excuse now. You're under quarantine. Start doing it. <laughs> Jacob, what do you think the chances are of Comic-Con ha- happening this year? <sighs> That's a really good question, Peter. Uh, I think I think the next six weeks is going to be vital. Uh, if, if everybody gets their act together, like, it's so weird because Austin as a city uh, is doing a really, really good job of, like, being on top of things, and as much as I don't like our current governor, he's he just issued today like all te- in addition to Austin, which he's been doing it for a week now, all Texas restaurants must close dine-in uh, by Friday. Uh, so they're they're the, the Texas local and state government is actually on top of it. For they're I'm actually pretty impressed so far. They're even allowing bars to do alcohol delivery uh, to keep to keep the <laughs> bars from you know uh, shutting down entirely. So like I'm I'm impressed, but our you know, the, the, the current, our current central government over in Washington is uh, not helping at all. So it's a case where if, if all the central governments of the, of the United States get, get their act together, maybe, maybe we'll see Comic-Con. Uh, but when I was on a, a quick run out of the house yesterday, I still saw a bunch of people out and about playing basketball in a public park. And my first thought was the city needs to come chain up this park because they're all going to have coronavirus. So people, a combination of people thinking it's okay to go play sweaty basketball in a public park and the fact that Donald Trump is president of the United States makes you think that Comic-Con has maybe a 50-50 chance. Okay. Uh, ben, have you been feeling stir-crazy? Um, a little bit. I'm trying to pace myself with the, the stir-craziness as much as I can control it and and try to um, think about, like, you know, six weeks from now, how much worse I'm going to be feeling in terms of, you know, uh, being able to not leave my house and trying to look at this time as like the golden age right now. So I'm, I'm really like trying to put myself in a good headspace and not get too uh, bogged down in it right now. So I'm, I'm doing pretty well in terms of uh, all that. And I'm going out and like, you know, going on runs through my neighborhood and stuff like that. So I'm getting outside a lot. That helps out a ton. Um, just making sure to, you know, stay away from people when I'm actually outside. So it's not too bad. But I have had, uh, you know, all this this self-isolation time uh, has given my wife and I time to finally finish uh, editing our video from uh, in September and October of 2018. We visited Iceland and Ireland, and we made an Iceland video like six months after we got back. Um, it took, you know, a little while off and on. And then we just sort of like fell off and didn't really devote the time to uh, creating this Ireland and Northern Ireland video. And uh, now we finally finished it. So I'm pretty happy with the way it turned out. It's like, you know, seven minutes long or something. Uh, Maybe we can link to it in the show notes. It's on my YouTube page right now. But um, yeah, I don't really, you know, Peter, you're like a, a prolific YouTuber and I don't really do too much of that. But um, it's been a fun process of, you know, going through and, and we shot so much footage when we were there. Um, so it's, it's always interesting to try to whittle it down. And we have like, um, we visited Skellig Michael, which is where, uh, some of the Star Wars new trilogy was filmed and we've visited the ori- uh, original Winterfell. So there's some Game of Thrones stuff in there too. So, uh, I don't know, listeners who enjoy pop culture might find a couple spots to that, uh, that they might recognize in there. 
Yeah, your videos are very well edited, and uh, you just use a combination of like just very creative shots composed together. Like I feel like I watch a lot of people's videos, and it's just like them holding a GoPro, and yours like feels like ste- you know steps above that. Like wh- yeah, it's just uh, really good. But uh, we'll Thanks, put a Peter. we'll put a link to that in the show notes. Uh, I guess uh, while we've all been stuck in, uh, some of us have been doing some reading. Jacob, you've been reading? Uh, yeah, I finished the uh, the oral history of the James Bond series book. I've discussed the past uh, two water coolers. So I decided to move on to the writer's uh, – another book of books I had not read yet, which is Slayers and Vampires, the complete, uncensored, unauthorized oral history of Buffy and Angel. I'm not far enough into it to uh, talk about it at de- in length yet, uh, but this is like their th- third or fourth of their books that I've read now, and they're all good. And uh, Buffy and Angel has been over for long enough. That's I think should have a, a good ending because the one problem with um, with the James Bond book, you know, the Trek book, is that when it gets to the very, very end, uh, there hasn't been enough distance from Daniel Craig yet that, like, in the final stretch, people aren't being as honest, as brutally honest uh, about the movies as they are, you know, in the first, you know, 95% of the book. Everybody's still kind of like, yeah, I think Spectre was, like, was good. And, like, whereas, like... Whereas when you're 20 years removed from the world is not enough, everybody says, yeah, that movie kind of stinks. Uh, so it's it, – I'm looking forward to the second edition of the James Bond book where they can get people to talk about Spectre honestly. But so I'm hoping that um, Slayers and Vampires uh, gives uh, – everybody will be able to speak more honestly about everything. And I think those shows both ended very well. I, I love Buffy and, and, and Angel. I'm very excited to get all the hot goss and, and, and stories because these books are so full of great uh, like behind-the-scenes stories but also – just all the pettiness you could possibly want about who hated who on these sets. Uh, so, yeah, I'll let you guys know if it's worth the read in about a week or so. Uh, if you can, um, let, let me know if uh, it's worth the read. I'm definitely excited about that because I, I love Buffy. So that sounds really interesting. Jacob, let, let us know. Oh, I will for sure, yeah. H.T., what have you been reading? Uh, I have been reading The Marriage Plot by Jeffrey Eugenidis. Um, actually, before uh, this whole uh, shutdown and social dis- distancing happened, I was able to make it out to um, a stand of The Strand, which is the uh, most sort of well-known independent bookstore in New York. And I picked up a copy of The Marriage Plot because I was interested in uh, Eugenidis' past books and was kind of um, wondered if... Uh, I don't know if this is most recent film book. It was um, from 2011, but uh, was interested to read more of his works. He is the writer behind The Virgin Suicides and um, Middlesex, and I had really enjoyed Middlesex, mostly the first half of the book. I think the second half was a little bit weaker, but um, uh, I was excited to read The Marriage Plot because it's dealt with a, um, a protagonist who is a literature student, um, a literature major at Brown University during the 80s and uh, has a fondness for the works of Jane Austen and other 19th century romance novels. And uh, it's about sort of her navigating her own romantic life in college. Um, and it's definitely a much more low-key uh, book than not what I've read of Eugenidis before. I must be mispronouncing his name. And I'm very sorry. But I'm enjoying it. And um, I do think that the character that he writes uh, in Madeline, the the protagonist, is a very specific and almost incredibly accurate depiction of uh, a type of person that I know. It's not someone that I completely relate to, but I'm happy that he is able to just kind of bring out all of her flaws and uh, complexities to a character who can be somewhat, um, you know, uh, 
very typical in one of these types of books, but I, I'm enjoying it so far. And um, so that's The Marriage Plot by Jeffrey Eugenidis. Well, while we were we are all stuck in, we're, we're probably like watching movies and TV shows. And uh, I'm sure a lot of people out there listening probably want some recommendations. So hopefully we, we can talk about what we what we've been watching. And maybe some of those things will be good recommendations for those listening to the podcast. I'll, I'll start things out with something I briefly talked about yesterday on, on the podcast uh, when we learned that Westworld's ratings uh, went down, like uh, the viewership went down like half of what uh, season two's episode one was. Uh, Westworld season three, is, the, the first episode hit HBO this weekend. It is almost like a complete like soft reboot. It, it feels like a different show of like a little bit. It, it is set in the sci-fi future of our world. It's not in the in the theme park, which worries me a little bit because, you know, I like, uh, I like theme parks. I like, you know, I like Jurassic world and I was worried with Jurassic world fallen kingdom. Now that they're leaving the part park, would, would I still enjoy it? The answer was no, uh, but or not as much. I should say, uh, I did enjoy it, but, uh, some parts of it, uh, but Westworld season three, episode one, uh, feels so new and interesting and introduced these new characters, one of which is played by, uh, oh my God, what's his name from Breaking Bad? Aaron Paul. Aaron Paul, yeah, I don't know why I was blanking on that. Uh, and uh, I, it's not that he's very interesting, but the world is very interesting. And the way this is shot, the sci-fi future, I'm not sure what countries and cities they went to and how they augmented the reality to because I'm seeing parts of like different cities. Like I see parts of like San Francisco and I see parts of like Shanghai, like just like, like different cities. And it, it just looks so cool and so fresh. And some of the, uh, the first, this first episode is directed by uh, Jonah Nolan, Jonathan Nolan. And uh, he, you definitely get to see some like visual flares that are reminiscent of his brother Christopher Nolan. So it, it's uh, very interesting. I, I'm I'm in. This episode had an after credit sequence, which got me even more excited for this season. Uh, I you know I I like the mystery box, but season two I, I love season one of Westworld. It, it was fantastic. Season two became a homework like. Thing where like after you saw the episode you had to like listen to podcasts and read reddit threads to like even understand what the heck was going on uh i'm hopeful that season three still has the mystery box aspect that i like i like unfolding and like speculating week to week like this is my water cooler show i'm, d- I'm just hoping it avoids like the overcomplication. and i should say that even though this is a a soft reboot it is still complicated but i would say like not on the level of season two it's like complicated on the level of like season one at least from the first episode but chris you have seen the first four episodes yes that's correct does it get more towards season two or season one like what is your feeling on the season so uh i mean it's not as convoluted as season two but it definitely uh like this week's episode the upcoming episode it feels like it's just literally back where where it was last season like i agree the first episode felt like a little bit of a reboot but by season two i mean by episode two it's like no never mind we're still doing the same 
crap we did last season. Um, it's I do think it's it's a little bit better of a season so far than season two. Um, I, I like the addition of Aaron Paul and. There's some stuff coming up that that's pretty cool, but uh, I don't know. I feel like the show has really sort of run out of steam, and I know they want to do at least one more season, but I hope that is like the the end. I, I just I, it, it just feels like there's not much else you can do with this show at this point. So I would not be surprised if it uh, comes to an end along with everything else in the world apparently <laughs> do, do you think that we're gonna get any like huge like twists in this season because it feels like they they tried to do that with last season and that kind of backfired on them but like, uh there's there's a i know for a fact there are a few big twists coming yeah. up but they're not they're not like oh wow i didn't see that coming it's more like oh oh okay yeah that's what they're doing so yeah, the first episode kind of has a reveal, but I think we kind of all saw that coming. Um, and I, I'm, 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 I'm all in for them doing more episodes where like the setup and the reveal are in the same episode, so that I don't have time to like find out from Reddit, so, you know, yeah. what what might be happening. But I, at the same time, I like speculating week week to week. And I, I know we were just talking in our Slack channel, Ben. You, you have no interest in seeing this season uh that's correct yeah i mean even season one i i thought got you know edged a little bit too far into that convoluted territory that you were talking about um i I loved the look of the show i still love the look of the show but i uh yeah season two just burned me really really hard and i um i was like really hoping that it would pull out of the nosedive that it that it uh, <laughs> fell into and then it ended up just crashing and burning at the end of the second season. And I was like, all right, well, even though I love Aaron Paul and Lena Waithe is in this season and like Marshawn Lynch and like yeah. the cast is insane and, and the visuals from the trailers look really cool. I've just, I've been burned so many times that I, um, I'm just giving up on the show entirely unless everybody says, wow, season three is like a total masterpiece, one of the greatest things to ever be on TV, blah, blah, blah. And then I'll binge it, which I've never done with Westworld before. But that's um, not the way to watch Westworld. You got to watch week to week and have speculation and water cooler discussion. And But the thing is, I don't give a shit about the, the you know, speculation and water cooler stuff when I don't really care about the characters or uh, and I'm not invested in the narratives. Like, yeah. it's really it feels you're saying it felt like homework. That's what all the speculation and in between stuff feels like or felt like to me in season two. So I just I have no interest in giving myself more homework to do uh, unless I know that, you know, the the. Uh, the test is worth passing, I guess, to strain the metaphor. Um, so if it turns out to be really great and whatever, I would be glad to like, you know, watch the whole season and then go back and read all of the Reddit stuff and and theorizing and whatever and and think about the show uh, retroactively through that lens. But I just have no interest in like jumping on this bandwagon and, you know, for weeks and weeks and weeks being strung out and be like, you know, is this going to lead to anything worthwhile or is this just uh, mystery box wheel spinning for the sake of wheel spinning? Yeah. Yeah. I will say this season two, it's vision of the future is so striking and there's some interesting stuff being done where in, in the future of this world, there is a company that runs an AI system. I think it's called insight. Is that correct, Chris? Insight? Yes, it is. It's Insight. And they have this AI system that basically uh, 
people follow they they subscribe to the service to for it to basically tell us like what to do that would make us the most happy so the humans of this future world are in loops like the the robots were in Westworld, which I think is kind of an interesting sci-fi concept. Um, but anyways, I don't know. Uh, I I recommend it so far from one episode, but Chris has seen more than me, so maybe he knows better than I. <laughs> well, I mean, I'll, I'll put it this way. If you like Westworld and if you've stuck with it this long, you'll probably like this season. You're not going to be, it's not going to be like, ah, they fixed everything. But if you've, if you've stuck with it this long and you, and you've, mostly enjoyed it you'll probably enjoy this season okay uh well i will follow up in additional water cooler weeks to to give you an update on if if my if my feelings on this have waned any uh but okay i uh they put the star wars rise of skywalker film uh that uh, they made it available on home video or digital, I should say, on iTunes and Vudu and all those services. Along with that is a bunch of special features, which I, I'm shocked to say because I was very disappointed by the special features included with the Force Awakens uh, home release. And actually, J.D. Abrams for a while now has been like his movies have had like gotten a short like the special features have gotten kind of the shaft and I feel like it's because he's operating in this mystery box world where he doesn't allow like documentary filmmakers to come in and like film what's going on. And because of that, you, you end up getting like a lack of like substantial special features. You just get those like featurettes that they use to advertise the movies. But I am shocked to report that the rise of Skywalker has an incredible set of special features. It doesn't have any deleted scenes because I'm sure they're going to come back and, a couple of years and released the you know special special edition set of it with everything but uh it does have this documentary it's a two-hour documentary it's over two hours actually and it's called the skywalker the legacy of skywalker i think it is the skywalker legacy sorry and uh this is two hours it does this very interesting thing where it's intercutting behind the scenes footage from mostly the original trilogy some prequel trilogy but mostly the original trilogy in with showing us how this movie was being made and it's showing it like it's intercutting that footage at times where it's it shows a symbiotic relationship of like we're repeating the same things you know 30 years later or whatever however many years later uh 40 years later i guess um, and uh it, it's, it's very interesting in that way it has a lot of insight into the making of this film you really get to see uh some stuff that would shock you like uh they, they built a entire animatronic for that snake that Frey encounters in, in the underground of uh, Pasana. It's like a, a huge animatronic snake, and you would never know because it was just created by Neil Scan Scanlon in the creature department there, just for the actors, for like Daisy Ridley to play off of. And they've actually they actually replaced it with a CGI creation in the film. But it's it's amazing how much work because this snake actually looks amazing. There's like there's some stuff that you've probably seen online, like uh, John Williams cameo in rise of Skywalker. It's something I didn't notice is he, he's at a bar. He's at this, uh, he's like a bartender at a bar and he's surrounded by all these like pieces of set dressing, which look like robot parts. But when you actually pause and take a look at them, each one of them is a tribute to one of the films that he's been Oscar nominated for. So there's like 
you know, Jaws, Hook, Saving Private Ryan, Indie, Home Alone. It's 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 all there, and it's it's I mean, it's just a cool little detail of like in that scene that you would never notice unless someone pointed out. But like, it's the 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 master being surrounded by you know things that represent all the movies that he's been nominated for. So it's, it's kind of cool. It's cool seeing Daisy and uh, Adam Driver practice their fights and at one point i think like dizzy ends up like accidentally hits uh <laughs> driver with with their uh lightsaber uh i don't know it, it is a fantastic documentary i i would say it's not completely like the warts and all well no i i would say it is a warts and all documentary it's kind of like uh the director and the jedi in the the last release the, the the last jedi had a documentary that was fantastic uh it doesn't have you know the lead or one of the main stars of the film saying he doesn't like the direction the film's going while the documentary is being made and showing that side of things. But it does definitely show that things, decisions were being made kind of on a, a expedited timeline. And it's, it's interesting to get a glimpse into, you know, how everything was put together and how it all came together. And it's, uh, I, I, I'm seeing a lot of tweets online that it, after seeing this documentary, it's making people that, didn't like the film, appreciate the film more, and people that love the film love it even more. So I would highly recommend, uh, if you want to buy Star Wars Rise of Skywalker, uh, checking out the Skywalker Legacy. It, it's, I would honestly say it's probably worth the price of the 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 purchase price alone. Like, this documentary is a great documentary. And then there's a bunch of f- special features, like, also on the release that feel... Like there's like a 20 minute piece on uh, the Pasana action sequence that feels like it was a piece of this documentary that they just couldn't fit into the documentary, so they made it as a special feature. So the special features don't feel like those like bare bones, like just for advertising featurettes. These feel like you know in depth stuff that you're actually getting getting some substantial like getting to see how movies are made. So I highly recommend. Uh, the Skywalker Legacy now on digital release. Okay, uh, I saw the first couple episodes of Amazing Stories on Apple TV Plus. Chris, have you seen this yet? I haven't. I, I know you're 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 the I, big Spielberg guy, and this produced by he Spielberg. Like, but he didn't like direct any episodes, right? He just produced no, it. No, it's I, like Freakazoid. He put his name on it, but he had nothing to do with it. Yeah, I mean, Freakazoid, everyone. Hi, Jerry. Yes, wow, what a deep cut. <laughs> what, what was the underwater one that he produced? Oh, uh, Sequest or whatever. Sequest. With, yeah, with Roy Scheider. Yeah, he, yeah, he got into this weird habit in like the late '80s, early '90s, where he just like put his name on all this stuff he had like no actual input in. So, like, if if he was directing this new Amazing Stories, I'd be all over it. But I, I don't think he has that much to do with it. I could be wrong. Well, Chris, I'm here to report that you are completely right <laughs> that, uh, <laughs> that these episodes are written by Edward Kat- Katzis and Adam Horowitz, the guys that wrote uh, Tron Legacy. And I think they also did uh, – what was that show on ABC with – it was set in the uh, fantasy world. Oh, I know HD probably watched this. Once Upon a Time. Yeah, Once Upon a Time. Uh, I did watch it. <laughs> yeah, I watched the first couple seasons. It was actually – for the first two seasons, I would actually argue that's a good show. Then it went off yeah, the rails. Yeah, I'm on the same boat as you. <laughs> went off the rails, and I stopped watching when they started bursting the song. Yeah. Uh, I, this uh, show is 
cheesy in a way that it feels like the show was made in like the 1980s and released today. The first episode, uh, you know, this is an anthology series. So each episode is its own story. The first episode is the story of uh, these two brothers who are fixing a house and a weather storm causes a time tunnel of some kind where one of the brothers goes back in time and experiences, you know, and, and falls in love with the woman who lived in the house and was uh, set up for marriage, all that kind of stuff. It's very cheesy. Uh, I don't know. Maybe watch it. I, I don't know. The second episode uh, was directed by Sylvian White, who did uh, Stomp the Yard and The Losers and uh, is set kind of like in... Uh, I don't know. I, I, I can't recommend this show, actually. <laughs> I'm not even going to waste your time with this, which is disappointing because I was actually this was one of the big Apple TV shows that I was looking forward to and wanted to see. And after two episodes, I, I really can't bring myself to go any further. Like, I, I'm sure there's probably some better episodes in there. But uh, if, if you can't win me over with a time travel episode in my you know my favorite movie is Back to the Future which is also produced by Steven Spielberg then uh something is wrong. So I would I would not recommend Amazing Stories on Apple TV Plus, but it's there. So if you have an iPhone and have Apple TV Plus or whatever, you can watch it. Uh I also trying to find a void of watching things uh with the self isolation. I found this show on Netflix called I am not okay with this. And by the way, finding the show on Netflix means I was out walking my dogs and someone else walking their dogs. uh, I mentioned that I was getting a little stir crazy. And they're like, have you seen the show? It's called I Am Not Okay With This. And I was like, no, I have not. Have any of you guys heard heard of the show? I Am Not Okay With This. I've I've heard of it. I've actually heard it's pretty good, but I, I haven't watched it. Yeah, I've heard of it too. Um, it looks interesting. I think we wrote about like the first ten minutes that were published, that were um, that you, they upload on YouTube, and uh, it's the supernatural sort of Carrie esque teen show, right? Yeah, no, that's totally what it is. It's on Netflix. It's a uh, coming of age. The episodes are twenty minute long, maybe a little bit longer than that. So you could like binge watch the entire series in the period that maybe you know you normally watch like a movie like Avatar or something like that. Uh, and uh, it's based on this comic by Charles Fol- Forsman, I think his name is. Uh, and it's directed by Jonathan Entwistle. Uh, he's the guy that did The End of the FN World, which is also based on a comic by Charles Forsman. Uh, which, uh, so if you've seen that, it kind of has the same vibe as this. I saw a couple episodes of that and I liked it. Um, the lead actress in this is the actress who played young Bev in it chapter one and chapter two. And, uh, this is executive produced by Sean Levy. So I'm, I'm sure they're probably promoting it in like a stranger things kind of way. And this does have a very, like Chris, I would highly recommend this to you because this has a very Stephen King feeling to it, like a late seventies, mid eighties vibe, but not like, not in that like it's just paying homage and feels like a ripoff of Stephen King things. Although the opening with the Carrie kind of thing that does feel like that, uh, but uh, most of it feels very unique and it has like this sharp dialogue and clever characters characterizations um so i would highly recommend this to anybody i've watched the first six of episodes i think out of 10 
or no, six out of eight, I think it is. And uh, I've not watched the final two, but it, it is building up into something fun. And uh, it, it almost feels like too short because it's like these 20 minute episodes. But I would highly recommend it. It is called I Am Not OK With This. And it is on Netflix. Jacob, what have you been watching? Well, uh, Netflix added three more collections of Jeopardy. <laughs> <laughs> so I've been watching Jeopardy and a little else. Uh, they're good collections, though. Uh, if you're like me and your uh, solution for quarantine circuitousness is just something comforting or keep your hands busy, <laughs> Jeopardy is still the best. And like I said, I watch Jeopardy every day. Uh, I record it every day. So having more to fall back on has been uh, really wonderful. Uh, but perhaps uh, more importantly, uh, I've the new season of Formula One Drive to Survive hit Netflix. And I'm talking about the first season back when it first arrived on this show. And I don't watch Formula One. I've never watched a single race. I have no intention at this point to go watch a race. But this is one of the best documentary series I've ever seen. It is the equivalent of if somebody let camera crews into every single locker room of the NFL and everybody was completely honest about who they hated, their dreams, their hopes, uh, who is screwing up, who is getting fired, who is getting replaced. Uh, it is just this immaculately shot, beautiful, pr- beautifully produced thing. It is uh, just incredible looking. And each episode is structured as its own little story. It's not just like, hey, here's a summary of a season of Formula One racing. It is here are two subjects who are thematically linked. Let's track what happened to them over these two races. Or uh, let's follow this one uh team manager over like one particularly bad week and the two uh big teams the two like number one teams ferrari and mercedes set out season one and they're they're here for this season and uh if you think that like following the champions would be boring compared to the underdogs it's actually even more thrilling because turns out the guys running the mercedes team are (laughs) really really fascinating especially their uh uh, team principal it's called the team essentially the coach slash manager of the team he he's like if john ham and arnold schwarzenegger was mashing the one person (laughs) <laughs> and his his name is Toto Wolf, and he's he, he lives up to that name. Um, but yeah, um, I I really think this is a deeply fascinating show. Uh, and you don't have to be a racing fan; you have to be a fan of like really interesting, great human stories and like really slick photography to enjoy Formula One Drive to Survive. Uh, the first two seasons now streaming on Netflix. Very cool. HT, what have you been watching? I have watched uh, Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. This is the Stanley Kubrick 1964 black comedy. Uh, It recently got added to the Criterion channel, and I was really curious to check it out because I'd heard so much about it, and it felt like an appropriate time in in just kind of the uh, apocalyptic, uh, bureaucratic uh, mishaps that are happening in the real world right now. Um, And... This movie is fantastic. It's uh, the it's absurdly comical and satirical in the way that it depicts how just bureaucracy uh, is its own worst enemy in terms of like uh, nuclear war and nuclear um, fallout, essentially. And it has the darkest, darkest of gallows humor. It is really funny and really bleak and uh, a real indicator of just Stanley Kubrick's pessimistic outlook on humanity that final shot just um, floored me when it's, um, well, I won't spoil it for you guys if you haven't seen this 50-year-old movie, but uh, it's fantastic. And um, it did not make me feel better about 
uh, our current situation, but it was very, felt very prescient in terms of just like everything that I was depicting despite being a satire. So yeah, that's um, Dr. Strangelove and that's streaming on the Criterion channel right now. And that is a classic. So have you been watching all classics? No, well, I've been trying to keep a balance because in this self-isolation era, I'm trying to do, to, you know, introduce myself to new films I hadn't seen before. But mostly, I've been kind of falling back on a lot of old shows or animes that I love. Um, but I have been watching a few new animes. Um, one that I'm going to find a little difficulty to talk about. So this is um, Netflix, a new uh, anime on Netflix called Beastars, and I'm going to have difficulty describing this without sounding like a closet furry, (laughs) Uh, (laughs) uh, because it's basically Zootopia, but horny. (laughs) Um, Beastars is an anime series that um, is set in an anthropomorphic world in which herbivores and carnivores live side by side in sort of like a very delicate and wary um, uh, balance. And uh, that balance gets shaken up when um, at the school where this series mostly takes place, uh, Cherryton Academy uh, has a student that um, is killed and devoured um, by a carnivore. So, um, yeah, there... just think of, they're, they're none of the cutesy designs that you see in Zootopia. Uh, it's very much like if you took a bunch of deviant art personas and put them into an anime. They're all drawn like, you know, in a in an anime kind of sensual way. And the way that it, it, it dives, the story uh, goes, it that it very much tackles less the socio-political commentary of Zootopia and more sort of the sexual politics of Japanese society. Um, It's interesting because when you think about what it's addressing, um, to devour in in Japanese is actually a slang for uh, having sexual intercourse. And in current day uh, Japan, uh, it's a common term used for men who don't have any romantic impulses is a herbivore. So some of that kind of gets uh, fed into the premise of uh, Beast stars, but it basically follows a an awkward um, loner wolf uh, named Legoshi, who is the cutest, and I love him, um, who uh, finds himself uh, accidentally attacking um, a, a rabbit at his uh, at his school, and he finds himself to become to be very to be growing more obsessed and attracted to her, and he can't tell whether it's his um, predatory instincts or whether it's actual love. Uh, it's very much a series that is about sort of the romantic, um, ins and outs of the students of the school. It's kind of, it verges a little bit on soapy, but it's more akin to a sweet coming of age, uh, story. It's the more I describe it, the weirder it sounds. Uh, yes, it does get sexual. Yes, you will be weirded out, but it's surprisingly endearing, and the animation is actually quite gorgeous. Uh, it's a 3D animated anime, which I usually uh, really dislike. But the way that they incorporate other types of animation into the series, they use puppetry, stop motion, watercolor animation, and they blend it all together with 3D animation in a, in a way that is um, 
really remarkable and something that uh, I rarely see in terms of experimentation on an anime series. So uh, this is Beastars. I would recommend it if uh, you are into anime, and um, but I, I don't know if I would recommend it for non-anime fans because it's quite a, a, a leap. But um, Beastars is good, guys. I love it, and I'm a little obsessed with it, but I'm not a furry, I promise you. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> I, I'm I'm not sure that's assuring. That <laughs> this this show sounds so weird. It's really weird. It but it leans right enough into the weirdness while taking its premise seriously that you find yourself, you know, entranced by it. It's it's actually like quite well written and the characters really pop off the screen. Um but yeah, I would recommend giving it a chance just because it's not really like anything I've seen. It's not even very similar to Zootopia, but um, it's a, it's a strange show, but it's really, it's really fun. Okay. What else have you been watching? I'm, I'm afraid <laughs> I, to ask. <laughs> That's the weirdest of all. Well, we'll see. That might be the weirdest of all of these. Um, another film I watched is uh, Lou Over the Wall, and this is a well, this is an anime film, and it's directed by uh, Masaki Yuasa, who has directed other films such as Mind Game, uh, the Night is Short, uh, Girl Walk On, or something. Um, and this is a film that is very similar in premise to the Studio Ghibli film Ponyo. Um, and it even has a character, a mermaid character, who looks very similar in character design to Ponyo. But uh, it's a com- another coming-of-age story about a young middle school boy who joins a band and um, is living on, is, has moved recently to this small fishing island to live with his father and grandfather and finds that... Um, as he plays music uh, by the shores, that the music attracts this young childish mermaid who uh, starts to gain the ability to walk and dance whenever he plays music. And um, it's a little weird. It's very uh, much like if you took a Looney Tunes hammer and on and uh, smashed Ponyo on with it because it's also has a lot of fluid experimental animation to it but it's a much more by the numbers coming of age story he like he learns the the value of friendship and of music and uh unites the entire island to um uh to save themselves from an oncoming tsunami and it's very sweet uh it's also streaming on netflix um if you did not like uh masaki yuasa's other films, uh, I remember watching Mind Game and really being turned off by it because it's it's incre- incredibly uh, disturbing and wild and a little bit too chaotic. But um, Lou Over the Wall is definitely much more subdued and uh, family friendly. So uh, that's Lou Over the Wall and that's streaming on Netflix. And um, uh, other things I've been watching... Uh, to sort of as sort of a chaser to Doctor Strange Love, uh, but in the vein of the pandemic that we're currently going through, I rewatched Shaun of the Dead, um, and this is one of my favorite zombie films, zombie horror, horror comedies, um, and it's just a fantastic movie to watch and just seeing this movie again and uh, just it's really still holds up, uh, as does Edgar Wright's really sharp and funny direction, uh, and yeah, it's a great. It's a great pandemic movie, a great zombie movie, and something that uh, will kind of help you escape from the anxieties of uh, today. 
But um, my uh, roommate and I have been hanging out a lot more because we've both been working from home. And as such, we've been watching a bunch of bad animal-led movies on Disney Plus because she really adores movies with talking animals. And I can't say I've watched a lot of them. So we decided to just dive into some of the weirder offerings that you see on Disney Plus, uh, such as movies almost exclusively from the 70s that have uh, talking animals in them like The Cat from Outer Space and The Shaggy DA. Uh, the Cat from Outer Space uh, was something that we just kind of stumbled upon on Disney+, Plus, and it tells a story of a cat from outer space who uh, gets stuck on Earth and um, must uh, retrieve his spacecraft with the help of a human named Jake. And uh, he has the ability to talk because of a special collar, and this collar also gives him the powers of telepathy and flight, flight for some reason. Um, but the majority of this film, uh, they spend just kind of doing nothing. A lot, like, there's a whole subplot where they just tr spend um, like 40 minutes gambling and um, I think they they had a an object in mind. They were trying to get enough money. Okay, yeah, so, I remember so, now. They were so, trying to so get enough money. Like, it was like the Last Jedi. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> a lot of MacGuffins everywhere. No, no, sorry. I was thinking Rise of Skywalker. Ooh. Last Jedi is great. <laughs> no, but they do go to a casino and try to gamble to find the the something code breaker. Yeah. I don't know. It was ridiculous. Yeah, well, MacGuffins everywhere. But uh, yeah, they they try to they try to gamble so that they can get enough money so that they can um, bet on a horse race and win the prize <laughs> so that they have enough money to build a new uh, flight uh, engine or something. It's really ridiculous, and they spend half the time just saying we don't have enough time. We have to get to work, and then they waste time just flying or the cat ends up uh falling in love with the another cat that neighbor and he spends most of this time just like putting endangering everyone else's lives by flirting with her it's very bizarre movie and i know that um jacob has seen this movie before when i mentioned it and uh, uh has a lot to say about it uh yeah cat from our space i had this on vhs as a kid i, I watched it dozens of times because that's what you did when you were a kid with vhs tapes you had uh, Cat from Outer space it is a terrible movie where a cat uh, is on camera for most of the movie and they add a voiceover but the cat clearly is disinterested in being there it, it stars uh co-stars uh both mclean stevenson uh and oh goodness i'm blanking on him harry morgan aka the two commanders for the tv series mash uh, so if you have, if you're a fan of mash trivia, you need to see uh, the Captain Outer Space. Uh, yeah, there are uh, all kinds of uh, silly live. Pretty much when I think of live action Disney from the 60s and 70s, I think of um, shots of people going what while things move on their own, and there are lots of shots of that happening in Captain Outer Space. So uh, if you like shots of people going what while things move on their own, uh, Captain Outer Space <laughs> movie for you. <laughs> Yeah, uh, another live-action Disney movie with uh, a, an animal that looks very disinterested in everything that's happening while the people just scramble around is the Shaggy DA, which we also watched from 1976. Um, and this was wait, just wait, wait a second. Is this like is this the Shaggy Dog? Or is this a sequel no, to the Shaggy it's Dog? No, a sequel to the Shaggy Dog. And neither of my roommate and I had seen the Shaggy Dog, so we're. But she was just really excited by the idea of a dog practicing law, and we we're like, "Let's watch this." <laughs> and um, so we were very confused because there, it actually like 
alludes to the first Shaggy dog movie where the main character from that movie who gets transformed into a dog uh, is an adult here. And he talks about how he had gotten transformed into a dog as a teen. And you're like, oh, that's weird and a weird <laughs> thing to like bring back. And it's also full of subplots and characters who appear and then never appear again. And um, it uh, it is, yeah, there's an ice cream truck uh, driver who's really obsessed with getting this dog on TV. Uh, and uh, the lead character, Willie Daniels, is trying to run for attorney general, but he keeps turning into a dog. <laughs> and uh, that ruins his campaign. But um, And there are also burglars, for some reason, who show up like three times, and they're the people who start off, kick off the events by stealing a ring that actually transforms Lily Daniels into a dog, but then they show up like two more times and have no actual impact on the plot whatsoever. And it's very odd and bad, but um, it was a it was a nice sort of escape after all the dark stuff that I had been watching, and uh, but still just as weird as some of the, the weirdest stuff I had been watching. So that's the Shaggy DA, also on Disney+. Plus. I'm looking at the poster of this now, and the tagline for this movie is the only wait uh, <laughs> the only candidate with a law degree and a pedigree. Yep, it sounds like something out of Jacob's book. Fortunately, he never does practice law while he is in dog form. <laughs> Spoiler alert. <laughs> okay, um, Ben, what have you been watching? Uh, for some reason, and I can't remember why, I decided to convince my wife that it was uh, it was time for us to rewatch GoldenEye, the 1995 James Bond movie, the first to star uh, Pierce Brosnan, and we did that, and um, I it, it was not as good as I remember it being. So, Jacob, I want you to sound off on this because in my mind, uh, before I started watching this, GoldenEye was maybe like the third best of the no that's not true maybe top five maybe like number five or something in the entire james bond canon um after i watched it it still may be it still may hold that same position but i think my estimation of the entire bond franchise has gone down if that makes any sense it's like the entire thing uh the, the whole franchise is worse than i remembered even though i i feel like that ranking is still correct where does goldeneye fall for you uh, it's mid tier. Uh, I think Goldeneye has mid-tier. like really tier. Oh my god! Wow. I think it has really inspired sequences. Like there are individual moments of Goldeneye that really work. And I think Pierce Brosnan uh, gets a raw deal in the later films because he's so good as Bond, and the movies really stop shaping up for him. Uh, but I get so uneven. I think the score is one of the worst scores in any Bond movie, which is actually covered extensively in the book I just read, um, and that really, really hurts it quite a bit. Uh, I think Tomorrow Never Dies is a better movie. And that's one that people are really mixed on when it comes to bras and movies. But yeah, like there are only maybe four, maybe five great James Bond movies out of the 25, uh, including No Time to Die. Yeah. Uh, so when I say that GoldenEye is pretty good, you know, that's, that's, that's actually pretty high praise for a James Bond movie. But yeah, um, I, I think it's I think it's a totally solid movie, uh, hurt by a bad score and by a script that was written by a lot of people, and you can tell. Yeah, I really, I just, you know, that was, I think, the first um, Bond movie that I saw in theaters. So you always have that, like, special connection with, uh, you know, with a, a franchise like that, especially a long-running one. Um, and and for so many years, Pierce Brosnan was, like, my guy. He was, like, my James Bond. And I, I think it was because I was there, you know, from the beginning when he, uh, when he started. And I sort of, like, 
put up with all of his adventures as they as those movies got progressively worse. But um, it, now in the Daniel Craig era, I mean, it, it's night and day watching their depictions. Like they're playing the same character, but their takes on James Bond are so drastically different. It's it's really kind of wild to watch. So um, I, I don't know if I would recommend Goldeneye. I mean, like I don't know if it holds up as well. As you know, if you saw it in the 90s and really liked it then, I'm not sure if you're really going to like it as much now, but um, it does have Sean Bean in a, a key role. Uh, there's some recognizable people, like Mini Driver pops up in a very, very small, like two line part. Um, Famke Jansen is in it as well. So Jodon Baker, like there's there's some pretty uh, eclectic actors uh, rounding out the cast. But um, yeah, anyway, that, that's Goldeneye if you want to. Uh, dive back into the 90s Bond uh, period and check that out. Uh, I also watched Lady and the Tramp, the 1955 uh, Disney animated movie. Um, This is on Disney Plus right now. And uh, I think I've said before, like my wife and I uh, watched the Aristocats recently. We're just like sort of going through the Disney Plus archive and and rewatching movies that we'd only seen, you know, once or twice or maybe not even at all as kids. And this was one of those where I think I'd maybe seen it, you know, once or twice when I was really, really young and really forgot about a lot of it. Um, Wow, that whole Siamese cat thing. That's a that's a whole thing, isn't it? Wow. Uh, It's not not exactly fun to watch in 2020. (laughs) Yeah, that's uh, it's pretty rough. Um, I guess Lady and the Tramp as a whole is kind of rough because I I remembered there being like an adventure that she goes on with the tramp. And there's this whole thing with a rat and the baby. And like, it's very dramatic at the end. most of the movie, I, I I think we paused it about halfway through, and it was still just like Act One, basically. Like she was, you know, lady, this this cocker spaniel dog, is just uh, you know, hanging out with her upper class family, human family, and they have a baby, and that's like most of the movie. And then like the adventure seems like it's really crammed into the back, you know, two thirds of the movie, um, and really sort of given short shrift in the in the long run. But uh, the animation, some of it is is really pretty to look at, especially for the, the mid fifties. Um, they get like the the uh, physicality of the dogs down really well. So that stuff is, you know, I guess vaguely interesting to watch. But I, I think there are just so many better. Disney animated classics to watch than Lady and the Tramp. So I apologize if I'm like offending anyone who this is their favorite Disney movie of all time or something. But uh, yeah, this one didn't really do it for me in the way that I was hoping it might. But I, I do want to say I actually like the low key um, sort of nature of Lady and the Tramp and how it's more almost an existential crisis for her where she's slowly being replaced by this baby and uh, losing that kind of adoration that she used to have. But I I also see how it's like kind of feels like a little bit crammed in the second half. Yeah, yeah. It just turns into a different type of movie. Like the the scope opens up and I I would prefer, you know, spending more time in that open world instead of that um, more sequestered sort of area, especially now in this in these times of self-isolation. But um, okay, I also watched. uh, have, Have you seen the live action version yet? No, I haven't, and I have no interest in doing that. Yeah. I, I like, uh, who is it? Uh, Kiersey Clemens is in it, or Tessa Thompson, or both? I, I don't recall now. Uh, <laughs> I feel like I wrote up the casting news for that a long time ago and then just never gave it a second thought again. But Yeah, yeah, yeah me too. I, I, I was just curious if you, if you could compare, but apparently you can't. So No, no, sorry about that. Um, I rewatched Back to the Future. Uh, like HT, you know, I'm sort of like falling back on 
old classics or, or, or uh, nostalgic favorites or whatever. Um, so, you know, when when we're struck by um, moments of anxiety, uh, just throw on an old favorite. And Back to the Future is one that my wife and I hadn't seen in a little while. Um, we watch it every you know few years and it was just it felt like it was time. Uh, I don't really know if I have anything to add other than this movie is so, so good. Uh, Peter, is there, is there anything, I mean, obviously this is your favorite movie of all time. Is there anything that you noticed on like, um, I don't know, viewing number 900 that you never noticed before that's like a super deep cut in terms of like, uh, you know, a background actor doing something insane or like something that nobody would really recognize even if you've seen Back to the Future a bunch of times? Um... You know, there there were things. I, I I'm not sure if there's anything that can come to mind. I know there's this one shot that's like this walking shot where they're walking in Hill Valley Square, and the camera kind of goes past the tree and starts. And they, uh, Marty and Jennifer, or I think Jennifer, are walking. And it's funny if you watch that scene as many times as I've seen it, you can actually see them waiting for the camera to start moving past the tree before they start walking. So there's things like that that I've noticed, but uh, I'm not sure if there's anything. I mean, everybody like points out the Lone Pine Mall thing. I feel like that's obvious, right? The Twin yeah, Pine oh, Mall, definitely. yeah. But like uh, some people, I, every like year on Reddit, they seem to discover that, you know, in the beginning of the movie, it's Twin Pine Mall, and then by the end, because the DeLorean went over one of the trees, it is Lone Pine Mall. So, but I think that's pretty obvious. So yeah, yeah. I think one of the things that I I maybe read about or didn't really pay attention to um, is that there's a moment late in the movie where uh, Doc is setting up the uh, experimental weather equipment in, in Hill Valley Square, and a, a police officer comes over and says, like, "Do you have a permit for this?" And Doc is like, "Yeah, I have one. Let me see if I can find it here." And it's in the background, so if you're not watching it, you can't really see. But he like reaches into his wallet, and he, it, like the implication is that he's bribing the cop, and yeah, just, yeah. Like, paying him off to walk away. And I never really clocked that until I don't know two or three viewings ago. So I don't know if anybody out there is looking for like deep cut Back to the Future information. There's this book. I don't remember what it's called now, but I may have talked about it on the water cooler a, a long time ago. But there's this really really great uh, in depth behind the scenes book about the making of Back to the Future that is um, phenomenal. Maybe I'll try to look that up and, and bring it up here in a couple minutes. But I would recommend reading that, especially now when people have a bunch of time on their hands. But yeah, it, uh, it was also... done by like the unit publicist of the the two sequels, and it is incredible. It has like pictures and things you've never seen before or never published before this book. Uh, one thing I would I, I think you know, last time I was watching Back to the Future, I'm wondering since you just rewatched this, I was thinking like I'd love to read a piece dissecting what Back to the Future is trying to say about politics or the political you know landscape because. You have like 1955 looks so glittery and perfect, right? And mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know Goldie Wilson is stuck serving uh, serving like milkshake or cleaning up the uh, you know Mel's diner or whatever. Um, and you know he wants to run for mayor, and he eventually does run for mayor and becomes the mayor. But like now 1985 is like a mess. Like there's like homeless people in the in in the you know, courthouse square. Do you think they're saying anything? Do you think the writer Bob Gale? Or, I was just wondering that because it, it kind of a little bit tinted my like love for it. I, I still love the movie, but like I was just wondering, like, are they saying anything, or is it just like that nostalgia for 1955 and how perfect it was, even though it probably wasn't? 
Yeah, I think it's more that and and from, you know, the stuff that I've read about it, it seems like, you know, they put a lot of time into the the plotting of the movie. Like it seemed like most of their concentration, at least from the stuff that I've read, was in writing the script. It was all about making it, you know, as sort of like uh uh, perfectly plotted as possible where everything made sense and everything, you know, I guess like it made sense as far as anything can make sense in a time travel movie, you know? Um, but I, I don't know if they really, if him and Robert Zemeckis like went out of their way to like put political commentary in there. I think that's stuff that people are reading into the movie a little bit later, but I, I don't think that it makes any of those readings less valid because that's, you know, that's what happens. That's what we all do. That's what happens in, in any piece of artwork. It's created, it's put out in the world, and it's up to us to find, uh, you know, figure out what it means to us. So I, I think all yeah. of those readings are probably valid, but um, I, I don't know how much intention there was in stuff like that. I think it's probably just what you were saying in terms of the nostalgic aspect. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> I, I love this movie too, guys, but the fact that Goldie, Goldie is inspired to run for mayor by a white guy, and then a white guy invents rock and roll. The optics aren't great. But, but he, <laughs> was, but he wasn't inspired, though. Like, he was already going to run for mayor. Like, Back to the Future universe doesn't work. He says, like, he says like, like um, Marty McFly says, you can be mayor. He says, yeah, mayor. I like the sound of that. Yeah, yeah well, he yes, said, but like, he's... I, he has, but, like, ambition to do something, but Marty put... Marty, like, incepts the idea that he should become the mayor. So who knows what he would have done Gump, otherwise. Uh, trend of inserting white guys into the... Oh! <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but, like, the Back to the Future time travel universe doesn't work in the way that the things that have already happened in the future already... Do you know what I mean? Like, he would have became become mayor anyways. What? Um, no, is it the whole point of the Back to the Future is they change stuff? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. No, but what I'm saying is what he comes from a place. At the beginning of Back to the Future, there is a poster that says Goldie Wilson, re-elect Gold, Goldie Wilson as mayor. Right, right. So he's already mayor. So when he goes oh, back right, in time. I see, I see what you're uh, saying. Right. Okay, yeah, so, yeah this like is the butterfly effect that he does yeah, later. Okay, yeah. gotcha. Well, the point is those 1984 optics, well, well-meaning, have not <laughs> aged well. In a, movie, in a movie that's otherwise fairly flawless, the racial yeah. politics of Back to the Future are weird. Yeah. We all agree on that. Yeah, 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 for sure. I, I will point out this. This is one thing I did notice in many watchings of Back to the Future because we're talking about politics. Uh, in 1955, the mayor is this guy named Red Thomas, and he's the mayor of Hill Valley. It's like uh, I think that's like one of the first telltale signs that Marty is not where he thinks he is. He sees that car drive by with the reelected Mayor Thomas, uh, uh, mm-hmm. uh, Red Thomas, and when he gets back to 1985. He gets out of his DeLorean and there's the bum on the on the uh, bench and he he calls him Red. So is that the same Red? Has the mayor now become the bum and the guy working in the, you know, the the diner has now become the mayor? See, this is why I brought this up, Peter. I'm glad this is exactly what I was looking for. Some little piece of minutia that I'd never thought of before and that you've come through for me. So I appreciate that. That's that's really great. Yeah. And then I also watched uh, Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Ring, sort of in the same vein of like finding something that uh, was familiar and comforting to watch. Um, We're also looking for something to fill an an exceptionally long period of time in that movie. We watched the extended edition. So that uh, fit the bill. And uh, man, that movie really, really holds up. It's it's so great. The the extended edition is a little weird there though. There's some stuff in there that I never really picked up on before. But um, I don't know. I, I think I would have to make like a 
uh, an exhaustive list of all the differences to really like bring them up in any sort of significant way. But it's just weird having watched the theatrical cuts so many times and then to suddenly watch the extended edition and be like, this stuff is so unfamiliar, but uh, some of it makes sense for why they cut it out. Some of it seems like actually kind of pretty important. Like there's this part where um, Boromir like tries to, uh, during the council scene, he like tries to make a play for the ring, like pretty early on and Gandalf like stands up and yells at him and like the thunder claps, you know, come around the, the sky changes color. And it's like this huge moment. And that's not in the theatrical cut. Um, and it seems like that's a, a pretty significant moment that they cut out, but most of the rest of the stuff I feel like, uh, was cut pretty smartly, but that one I was kind of like, huh, I wonder how that would have changed everyone's perception if they left that in there. So, uh, anyway, Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Ring, great movie, still, still great. Um, and then, Hot take. Uh, I also, yeah, exactly. And then, uh, I also watched this new HBO documentary called The Women of Troy, um, which is about uh, Cheryl Miller and the USC basketball team in, I think, the 1980s. And it was they were sort of running parallel to, like, Magic Johnson and, and the Showtime Lakers at the time. And Cheryl Miller is, like, one of the greatest basketball players of all time. She was, you know, this college superstar. And it's all about how she um, was convinced to go to USC and play with, like, this, you know, super stacked team of really, really great players and how they sort of, uh, you know, introduced a new a new concept to the game and, and changed the perception of, of women's basketball and became, she specifically became the face of women's basketball for a long time and laid the groundwork for the WNBA. Um, There's a lot of stuff that I've never really known before, and the documentary is only about an hour long, so... Uh, it's an easy watch. I would recommend checking it out if you have any interest in um, in basketball or, or uh, women's sports or anything like that. Um, there, uh, my wife and I were talking about it afterwards, and she was saying that she wished that it was a little bit longer because there are some tangents that they sort of like vaguely introduce but then never really follow up on that seem really really interesting. Like they show one of uh, Cheryl Miller's teammates, uh, I think, or maybe it was somebody who who um, was a player before. Uh, this whole USC team really got started. But um, this female player was signed to the Indiana Pacers and like was practicing with the male team and stuff. And like, was that just a publicity stunt? Like what was the extent of, of that relationship? How did that end? Like that, that's something that I've never heard of before. And I was really curious about how all of that, you know, happened and, and what uh, went down there. But the movie just sort of like cuts to a couple shots of, uh, of her being interviewed and, um, you know, footage from the time, but never really follows up on it in any sort of real way. And I was, I was a little bummed that they just like dropped that thread. But uh, Women of Troy is on HBO, uh, HBO Go, HBO Now, right now, if you want to check that out. And um, yeah, like I said, it's only about an hour long, so it's a good watch if you're looking for something to to fill the time. And Brad had to leave us because his computer was glitching out. But so, Chris, what have you been watching? Uh, <clears throat> my wife and I are, are trying to catch up on Disney things we haven't seen on Disney Plus. Uh, so we watched th- uh, three things. Um, one I had already seen before, uh, but sh- but she hadn't, and the other two neither of us had seen before. Um, so we watched uh, Tarzan, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, and Big Hero Six, and Hunchback is the one I had seen before. And all are varying levels of good. Uh, I really like uh, Hunchback a lot. I feel like that's like kind of an underrated movie in in the Disney canon because it's 
I don't know. It's gorgeous to look at. It's like very weirdly dark for a Disney movie, especially one rated G. Uh, so I, I, uh, I really like that. And Tarzan, I had never seen before. And I was pretty impressed with that too, just cause it, that movie is like nonstop action. And it, it really made me appreciate just the animation in that movie. Cause it's like constantly moving. And I thought that was just like very impressive. And big hero six was fine. I thought that was of the three. That's the one I, I liked the least, even though I didn't think it was bad. I just thought it was okay. Um, Chris, what did you think about the the uh, soundtrack to Tarzan, the Phil Collins thing? Because that was like a huge deal at the time. I kind of liked that. I liked that they took that that Toy Story approach where the characters don't sing; it's just songs on the soundtrack. And I, you know, I thought the songs for the most part were fine. They weren't like like ah, I, that's stuck in my head forever. But I, you know, I liked them when they were unfolding in the film. Cool. Yeah. And then on the the complete opposite end of the spectrum, I also watched. Uh, in the cut, which is on uh, the Criterion Channel, it's actually leaving Criterion Channel at the end of the month, which is why I finally sat down and watched it. And this is a, a Jane Campion film, and it stars Meg Ryan and Mark Ruffalo, and it's it's very steamy and sexy. It's you know it's an erotic thriller basically, and it it did very well, very poorly when it came out. And, and uh, it was kind of like the last movie Meg Ryan did. Uh, she hasn't really done much since then. And I, I saw it when it came out, and I was sort of like so so on it but rewatching it now uh, i was really impressed with it i think this is a like an uh very underrated film uh, meg ryan is this this english teacher and uh a woman gets murdered and dismembered and then the woman's body is found outside her apartment and so a detective played by mark ruffalo comes by to, to question her and they end up falling into this really complicated kind of toxic but very very sexually charged relationship and she also she starts to suspect that mark ruffalo actually might be the killer because there's all these these hints implying that he's he's you know the, the the killer out there and uh you know the mystery angle isn't that great you can kind of figure out where it's going but the movie itself is just really fascinating because it's just shot in this very unique way where a lot of the the frame is is intentionally like blurred like only the center is in focus and everything around the frame is intentionally out of focus which gives it this really dreamy uh vibe and it's also very very sexy for a, a big hollywood movie like this was uh you know it cost a, a fair amount to make and it, you know it had a movie stars in it and it didn't do well, but the fact that Jane Campion, you know, took that that Hollywood money and made this this risky movie that I don't think would ever get greenlit today is pretty cool. So if you have the Criterion Channel and you're you're in the mood for something steamy, check out In the Cut before it leaves at the end of the month. Okay, uh, let's move on to what we've been playing, Jacob. What have you been playing? Well, as is my yearly tradition at this point, I fell back into XCOM 2, which I know I've talked about on the show before, but it's um, a game where you uh, are resistance fighters in a world occupied by uh, by, by alien invaders. It's, it's funny because yeah, in the XCOM 1, which came out, God, maybe close to a decade ago, you could have you could have you were defending the earth from alien invaders uh, but the canon ending for the sequel is that you lost the first game because it's famously hard. So in the sequel, you know you're you're the underdog, and you're both uh, sending troops out into uh, battles where you are, you know, micromanaging them, telling them where to go, telling them where to shoot, 
you know, bring out the med kits, you know, hold this ground, you know, cover this person and so on. And also you're managing your base where you're like trying to keep your budget under track and hire new soldiers and research and technology. And it just, it's, oh, it's, it's a game I love to death because it, it creates dramatic situations constantly. There's no, the story itself is pretty light, but the story you create in your own head because your soldiers all have randomly generated names or you can name them yourselves, name after all your family and friends <laughs> or movie stars or whatever. And, you know, you, you start like, you know, giving personalities to your soldiers on the field. So it starts like being really painful when they're taken down. You got any, some people will save their game constantly and always reload when a soldier dies, but that's bullshit. You gotta, you gotta play an Iron Man mode where it's called, where if somebody dies, it's your fault. You keep playing no matter what, which is how I play XCOM 2. And I put a, a good uh, 40 hours into it again since the quarantine began. I beat it once already. So I've upped it to a higher difficulty for the first time. Like it's not the, not the highest, but the one right below it. Where it's significantly more difficult, so I'm probably going to lose a few times. It's 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 the kind of game where you don't if you lose the game, you lose. You have to start over. It's not like it's not a game where it's like oh got to reload or I have ten lives. Nope. If you lose XCOM, you lose XCOM, which makes it a great quarantine game because you know I'm just going to um keep playing it forever and ever and ever and ever. Uh, <laughs> that that sounds frustrating to me. Oh, I love it to death. It's not for everybody, but if you like like genuinely like dramatic difficult making hard choices strategy games uh it's on i play on pc it is now available on console all the regular systems and there are rumors of a switch port i'm not sure how i feel about it being on switch because i'm not sure how well it'll perform on, on that console uh but yeah xcom 2 it, it the pc version is great because you can as a very active mod community who create like you know new uniforms for soldiers new ways to play the game uh new ui stuff and it, it's just a really really you, like it's been out for maybe five years now, and um, the community still supports it really strongly. Uh, so that's XCOM Two. Uh, it's my quarantine game. It's what I'm. It's what I'm doing uh, for now. Maybe I'll move on to another game I, I, I haven't played before <laughs> in the near future. But right now, I'm still in XCOM. Uh, but also, a uh, Ring Fit Adventure. I've talked about it before. I'll talk about it again. It is a great quarantine game because it's, it's a video game where you're exercising. And I know it's sold out on Amazon right now, but if you can find a copy. Uh, it is just a great way to. Uh, rededicate yourself to fitness while you are in your home uh, i'm very close to the end of the story campaign it's taken me uh, so far i think 25 hours you know thousands upon thousands of calories <laughs> to get to this point in it uh but it, it, i'm still not bored of it which is more you can say for a lot of video games and i'm told that once you beat the story mode it sort of starts over with your current status and you can keep playing you know increasing difficulty even on the earlier levels so i'm looking forward to this being a thing that i just do you know alongside my other uh, exercise reg uh, regimen for the foreseeable future uh, so if you can find a copy of this in, under quarantine uh, reading of adventure for nintendo switch is the one of the best uh, exercise tools i've ever encountered i've heard it's very hard to find <laughs> yeah <laughs> even it, before the quarantine it, it was hard to find yeah, that it was sure. In the first month or so of it being out, it was everywhere. I thought, oh, no, I hope this sells well. And now Nintendo report, like, sales kept on going up and up and up as word got out. So I'm, I'm hoping Nintendo will, you know, maybe release more downloadable content to, you know, more more levels, more options. And I would love for a multiplayer mode where you and somebody else can work out together. Uh, but, yeah, it is... Um, it, it is like it is a game changer in terms of like uh, video game fitness stuff. Uh, it's the first one of these that's worth a damn. I, I've tried and sampled Nintendo's other attempts to make one of these, and this is the first one that is a genuinely good workout and a genuinely good video game. I, I if, like I said, keep checking Amazon, re refresh it, you know, find it. it. It is worth your time. Yes, for sure. 
And by the way, uh, uh, when we were talking about Back to the Future earlier, and we were talking about Mayor Goldie or yeah, Mayor Goldie Wilson, and you mentioned that uh, the white guy. In, you know, gave him the idea to become mayor. Uh, while I, I disagree with that thing, it, it did occur to me in my head that uh, uh, Chuck Berry, that is wrong. That whole part where he's playing rock and roll and basically his cousin, uh, Chuck Berry's cousin, basically like plays the rock and roll music for him. Actually, no, maybe because he heard it from him. So he doesn't create. It's very confusing. The whole thing does not work, does it? No, I mean, it's just about like that first timeline, right, where Marty grows up as a normal kid in a world where those things existed, you know, without him time traveling. And then but that that gets into like the greater paradox of like time travel movies in general. So, yeah, yeah, that's where it gets bogged down. Although, I don't know, not to drag this out further, although he doesn't know we don't know that Chuck Berry existed in the early 1985 timeline, right? He had to. Uh, have. Otherwise, how would he know Johnny be good at all? Yeah, M- Marty was heavily but, inspired by him. But maybe someone else played Johnny be good, and then his cousin uh, played it for. Yeah, I don't know. Okay, I don't think it's a Cause, problem. Because Marty yeah. does this dance across the stage yeah. while he's playing the guitar. That is like a Chuck Berry like did that dance. So it's yeah, definitely yeah, him. Yeah. So, oh, so and, he and does, really so, quick, while we're talking about Back to the Future, the book <laughs> I was talking about earlier is called Back to the Future, The Ultimate Visual History, if you want to find that. Yeah, it, it is great. So I, I, I think I'd come back to the, the thing that he hasn't he doesn't cause Goldie Wilson to become mayor and doesn't cause Chuck Berry to create rock and roll. So it might not be problematic. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, okay, Ben, what have you been playing? Uh, I just started playing The Last of Us again. I figured, hey, it's a video game about a pandemic that wipes out a, a, a huge percentage of the population and infects them with a, a deadly disease where they turn into like zombified crazy people. And uh, yeah, there's nothing about that that's relevant at all. So um, I just this is like the one piece of uh, pop culture that I'm consuming right now that's like fully leaning into the insanity of our real world. Um, I, I played the game before when it came out. I loved it. It, it came out originally in 2013. Um, I'm, I borrowed a copy from a friend uh, because I have a. I had it came out for PS3 originally. I have a PS4 now. Uh, I bought a PS3 copy that won't now play on my PS4 because it's not backwards <laughs> compatible. So my friend actually has a PS4 as well, and he got like a remastered version of it. Um, so I borrowed it from him and instantly wiped it down with a Lysol wipe and then put it in and started playing. And uh, it's a really great game. So um, if you're willing to you know, confront the uh, existential terror of our current situation head on in video game form, The Last of Us is a, a really good way to do that. <laughs> Okay, that brings us to the end of today's Slash Film Daily. You can find more of all of our work at SlashFilm.com. You can find this podcast published every weekday on iTunes, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to us at Peter at SlashFilm.com. And if you can, please head over to iTunes and write us a, a glowing review of this podcast. We'd appreciate that. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you tomorrow. Hey, hey, Peter. Peter. Uh, yeah. Peter, um, I, I found something really incredible. The movie Back to the Future? No, it, it's better than that. It makes more sense. It is um, the gargantuan book of insult, offense, and affrontery, sharp retorts, uh, <laughs> repost, 
costly quips and input put down about Lewis A. Safian. But more importantly, I flipped through this book many times on this show, Peter, trying to find the best page possible. Actually, you know what? Uh, I, I, I don't like overthink it. I open it. If, if the page looks good, I'll stay on it. I try not to like f- search through it. Today, I opened up to page 400. <laughs> And I found a, a section that's only two pages long, so I've never seen it before. Because I've never, when I've opened it, my chance to find these two pages was always very, very slim. It is the writers section. And we're all wow, writers. it's been this long, and you're finally getting to writers. Yeah, so um, I think we're ready for the writers section. Uh, like Chris, he's putting everything he knows into his next literary work. It's sure to be a short story. <laughs> that's pretty good, actually. I like that one. Ben. You can read yourself to sleep with his novel. It's a great yawn. Uh. HT, she should have put a finishing touch to that story. A match. Oh, these actually aren't <laughs> bad. Yeah, these ones are actually pretty good. A uh, writer did these. Uh, Peter, your book is bound to be a best smeller. Uh. <laughs> you got to do Brad, even though he left. Oh, yeah, I guess. Um, as a mystery novel... His book is just run of the morgue. Eh, that All one's right, not bye. that good. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Shut the book for another week.